And uh, if you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 will be our text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I encourage you today in particular to follow along with your Bibles as we will be uh, covering a pretty decent-sized text here and uh, wouldn't want you to lose track. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So first of all, as we begin to study this text this morning, I want to manage expectations. What can jump off the page are verses 4 through 6, but I want you to see with me that these are not the primary thing Paul is talking about. These are supporting ideas. The primary thing that Paul is talking about is prayer. We see this in verse 1 where it says, First of all, first of all, we see, and this is the first point of the message, the priority of prayer. Right away we see for Paul that prayer is of great importance. All of the other charges given to Timothy from Paul were kind of for Timothy in particular. But chapter 2 marks a turn toward the church. Paul is now going to begin addressing the church. And he is going to give many commands, many instructions And the very first thing he charges them to do is to pray. So the priority of prayer is the first thing we see. And as we progress into the fourth word of that first verse, we see, first of all, then. This word then serves as a a sort of therefore for Paul. He He is saying that he has already provided an explanation for why we should prioritize prayer. Now, sometimes when you're reading through Paul's writings and he drops in a therefore, he does so like six chapters in, and you're like, okay, hold on. Let me go back and figure out what exactly this therefore is linking to. Thankfully, he does it here at the beginning of chapter two, and he's only really talked about two things so far. So this makes our work of connecting this prioritization of prayer to the previous chapter, it makes our work a little simpler. He's really only talked about two things. Firstly, he's talked about the encroachment of the darkness into the church. And secondly, he's talked about the goodness of God as revealed in the gospel. Those are really the two things he's talked about so far. He's talked about our war on earth, and he's talked about our welcome in Christ before the God of the universe. And so those are the two possible reasons Why Paul says, amongst all of the other commands he gives in 1 Timothy, first of all, pray. The two possible reasons are, one, there is a great war happening 
within the church. Not simply within the local body of the church, but I guess you could say against the church. I'll unfold this as we continue through our time in 1 Timothy, but Ephesus was really a combat zone. There were a lot of conflicts and difficulties being waged against the church in particular. So one of the reasons why Paul might be prioritizing prayer is that this church is experiencing spiritual warfare. In fact, in his epistle to the Ephesians, he says at the very end of that book, we do not wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then as he drops down, continuing in that, in Ephesians 6, he says, therefore, we've got to be praying. We've got to be praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. To that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication to the saints. So we see that Paul is prioritizing prayer, and we see this word thus, tying us back to something he has said before. And one thing he might be referencing is, friends, you are in a fight for your lives. You are wrestling, not against flesh and blood, that would be easier, but against spiritual forces. The other possible reason that Paul is prioritizing prayer is because he has also showed us the goodness of the gospel. He's shown us the war, and he's also shown us that we are welcome now in Christ, in God's family. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, a passage which Dove preached on, Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe. And then he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's think about this for a minute. This, I think this is instructive. Paul could be saying, you've got to put prayer as a priority because of this great war that you're fighting. You've got to, you've got to pray because you have to. You've got to pray because you won't get by without it. You've got to pray because you have to. But then if we say maybe he's tying this call to prayer to the great gospel that he has unfolded, now we see you've got to pray because you get to. These are the two possible reasons why prayer should be prioritized. Pray because you've got to. You're in a great fight. And pray because you get to. The great God of the universe has done everything. He has moved heaven and earth so that you could call him Father. So pray because you got to and pray because you get to. Those are the two possible explanations. And who knows which one he's talking about. It's very likely he's talking about both. I want to put a question before you this morning that's a bit rhetorical, and that's simply this. Has anything changed? Are the conditions in the Ephesian church different than the conditions in our church? Is the war stopped? Has the welcome ceased? By no means. And so we can see, along with the Ephesian church, that we should make prayer a priority. And the second thing we see in this text as we continue along in verse 1 is this impartiality in prayer. So we see that prayer is a priority, and now we see the impartiality in prayer. He prescribes all these different forms of prayer along with the injunction to pray for all people. 
Let's look at the verse again. First of all, then, we've covered that, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, if Paul saw significant differences between supplications, prayer, and intercessions, he didn't tell me. What I mean by that is it's possible when Paul lists these kinds of prayers, he had very specific things in mind that were unique to each one of those names. But except for Thanksgiving, I, along with many commentators, can see no difference between an intercession and a supplication. So what's going on here? Let's assume that that's intentional. What's going on here? Well, I think the main idea is that he is simply conveying this liberal, liberality with prayers. He's, he's essentially just saying all the prayers. Don't, don't hold back. Pray first and pray often. Um, an example of this in, in our speech would be a wife says, honey, would you like pancakes or waffles for breakfast? And the husband says, yes, because he's smart. That's what I think Paul's doing here. He isn't telling us to make sure that our prayers contain these specific elements so much as he is saying, pray, 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 pray. The only rule here seems to be the rule of liberality, of holding nothing back. Some of you are familiar with the famous quote from Ron Swanson, he wants all the bacon. Paul wants all the prayers. Hold no prayers back. I think that we can see that that is what he's getting onto because he not only says to pray in all these different kinds of ways, but then he says to pray for all people, all people. I think, again, this is conveying this sort of impartiality. Pray, for, pray, pray all the prayers and pray all the prayers for all kinds of people. Now, this is going to be key to your understanding of the entire passage. I think you've got to understand when he says pray for all people that he means all kinds of people. Impartiality is a theme that runs through this entire text, as you will see. And so when he says pray for all people, you can imagine someone with a very wooden, hyper-literalist uh, take on scripture who does not take genre and metaphor and figure of speech into account. You can imagine someone like that reading this and says, well, Paul says I have to pray for all the people, all the people that exist. So just bring me the phone books. You know, bring me, bring me all the people. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying pray for every single person. He's using a figure of speech. All the prayers, all the kinds of prayers for all the kinds of people. This is just communicating excessiveness, right? It's, it's communicating generosity. And so this, is, this shows up elsewhere where Paul says pray without ceasing. He's just, he just wants you to just... Never be stingy with your prayers. That seems to be the meaning here. And from there, we move on to the third point. So we've seen that prayer should be a priority, that we've seen this impartiality with prayers, and we also see that prayer should be practical. Uh, he says, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, who are in high, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I want to make sure that I take extra care today if you are new to prayer 
or if you look at your prayer life and see it as something lacking, I want to be sure that I am taking care today to give you God's primary teaching and God's primary heart concerning prayer. And that is, is that your prayers should be practical. Your prayers can be other things, but your prayers should indeed be practical. We see that practicality expressed in this passage because Paul is telling them, ask God to change your circumstances. Ask God to change your circumstances. Now, this is very important, and I want to take a moment just to explore that. We see that this, the aims of these prayers are not merely spiritual or mystical or pietistic. Paul wants them to pray for kings and all who are in high positions for a very practical reason. What's it say in the text? What's the reason he wants them to pray? He wants them to pray for those people so that his people, the Christians, can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, which is not the experience that the Ephesian Christians are having in the moment of this writing. They're not experiencing peace in a circumstantial way. They may be experiencing spiritual peace. I hope they were. But they were not experiencing circumstantial peace. And so Paul charges them to prioritize prayer, specifically practical prayer. If your situation isn't what it should be, ask God to change it. So we can sometimes dive into very lofty and theologically correct discussion of prayer and gloss over God's general teaching throughout the scripture regarding prayer. And that is simply this. You use prayer to ask God to change the world. You, you use prayer to ask God to change circumstances. I think a casual reading of this passage, sort of like, you know, how, how you know, our brain kind of fades in and fades out sometimes. And I think the casual reading of this passage, as I've talked to folks about it, tends to be something like this. Pray for all people, including kings and all those who are in high positions, because God desires that all people be saved. But that's not what the passage is saying. And that's not what Paul is teaching. Paul is telling them to pray for kings and rulers so that they can have a circumstantial change, an improvement in their circumstances. Now, don't get me wrong. I think I don't think this, this passage is telling you to pray for the salvation of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, you could do that. They certainly need it. But that is not what Paul is saying here. That is not what this passage is about. This passage is saying we would like to have the opportunity to live in peace. So pray for, and this brings me to my second point, pray for those who have the ability to make that happen. Right? And this is the other reason why I say that these prayers are so practical. In addition to just asking God for an improvement in their circumstances, he is also saying, let's pray for the people who have the most practical uh, opportunity to improve our circumstances. So I want to pit that against something that maybe you've thought about with prayer. And I don't think that what I'm about to say is incorrect in any way. I just think it entices us to miss God's heart regarding prayer. And I'm going to pick on uh, the hero of my faith, one of the heroes of my faith, C.S. Lewis. And this is something that he wrote, and it, it, it sounds so good because C.S. Lewis wrote it, and it's really caught on, and I've thought this myself, and I can understand why you would think this, and I don't even think it's incorrect. But I, I want to pick on this just for a moment. Lewis wrote, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. 
I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. Amen. And then he says, it doesn't change God, it changes me. Now, not a single word of that is wrong. Nothing Lewis says there is incorrect. But it does compete with the perspective that God himself most consistently communicates. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's in some respects attempting to get more theological than God. It, it isn't incorrect, but you've got to learn about things, not only by what God says about them, but how God talks about them. And friends, I'll just tell you that if you collected all the biblical data about prayer and said, what is God trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that prayer changes things. He's trying to tell us that prayer changes things. It's not simply that prayer changes things. And there is, every bit of what Lewis said there is absolutely correct. But let's not get too fancy for the Bible. Let's not get fancier than the Bible gets. And the Bible doesn't say what Lewis said. The Bible says over and over again, you have not because you ask not, right? The Bible says over and over again, wherever two or more are gathered, if two or more agree, and so on and so forth. And so let's make sure that we understand that God's primary thing that he would communicate to us about prayer is, is when something's not like it should be, ask him to change it. When something needs to become more than it is, ask God to do that very thing. You see, the practicality of prayer is embedded in our model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We're told to ask God to make what is true in heaven true on earth. That's praying for circumstantial change. And later in that same prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask the Lord to give us our daily bread. So let's make sure we remember that prayers are to be practical. They don't all have to be practical, but let's make sure that we understand that one of the things God has given us in our relationship with him, and our relationship with reality and circumstances, is he has given us prayer to address the things we don't see as right and ask God to make them right. So it's practical because Paul's asking them or commanding them, pray for, uh, pray for peace and quiet. And it's also practical because he's saying, Let's not get fancy about how this comes to pass. Who's in charge of making, it, of, of making the peace? Who's in charge of keeping the peace? And he's like, well, the, the kings and the rulers are the ones who keep the peace. They're the ones who enforce the laws. Essentially what Paul's saying is he wants all the Christians living in the Roman Empire to experience the same peace that everyone else gets through the rule of law. He wants the persecution to stop and so he suggests a very reasonable and practical course. Pray for the people who write and enforce the laws. Now, one of the things that you don't get from this text that you get from studying the times surrounding this text is something that you can pick up in Josephus's work in the Antiquity of the Jews. When we, when we read that book and we read kind of the contemporary happenings around this time, we need to understand that the Jews, before Christianity had burst on the scene and after, would form delegations to go to the multiple levels of government, both in the city and all the way to Caesar, and they would petition these rulers to enforce the laws as they were on the books. The Roman system afforded rights and protections in two tiers. Roman citizens had the best, 
and then everybody else living within the Roman Empire also had a rule of law applied to them that afforded them protection and rights and so on and so forth. And to our very, very down the road of the advance of the gospel ears, it sounds like, oh my goodness, two tiers of justice, that's terrible. Well, it used to be 7,000 tiers of justice, right? Like it used to, Pax Romana, Google it. Like it, it used to be way worse. And so two tiers is not too bad, considering it used to be like literally every tribe had their rules and everybody was against everybody else and so on and so forth. So what, what you benefit from understanding this historical development is that there were certain laws that existed in the Roman Empire that applied to everybody. You couldn't steal from anybody. You couldn't murder anybody, and so on and so forth. And very often, the Jews were stolen from by the Romans and murdered by the Romans and so forth. So you had what was on the books, and then you had the reality on the ground. And so Josephus records an entire section, multiple instances when these Jewish delegations would go to levels of authority, both at the Caesar level and below, and they would say, hey, the laws aren't being enforced impartially. Um, the laws that you actually have written down aren't being enforced impartially, and, and we need you to enforce those impartially. That's what you said you would do. And so Josephus includes all of these primary documents that are letters from different people, Caesar Augustus and proconsuls and even officials in Ephesus, where they would write to all the people, and they would post these on pillars. This will come up later when we're in 1 Timothy, uh, for, further down the road. They would post these notices from these authorities on pillars, and these notices would say, basically, guys, knock it off. If you keep messing with the Jews, you're going to be punished. One of, I think it was a Herod that wrote, if you harm a Jew, we will turn you over to the Jews to judge you. There was a rule that said, don't file, um, don't file a lawsuit with a Jew that requires him to appear in court on the Sabbath, knowing that he can't do that, and therefore you'll win the lawsuit. So there, there's essentially a whole record of documents that are sort of like, you need to treat these people according to the requirements of the law. Now, why is that helpful? Well... At this time, at this time, um, Christians have no legal standing as a special group. They're not like the Jews. They, don't, they, they can't go to Caesar. They, they, can't, they can't appear as a delegation of something. There would be no recognition of them as anything at this point. And so what Paul seems to be doing, echoing what those delegations of the Jews are doing that we're told about in Josephus, is he seems to be saying, here's the thing. We have no standing before Caesar, but Caesar must stand before our God. We have no standing before Caesar, but the Lord holds the king's hand, the king's heart in his hand like waters. And so we can't appeal to Caesar, but we can pray that God turns their hearts and that they begin to enforce the laws impartially. So that the goal is in this passage is pray for these rulers that they will enforce the laws even-handedly so that we can live at peace, just like the Jews have been petitioning. Uh, the government so that they could live in peace. This impartiality theme, as I've said, is very important to understanding this passage. Now, let's just pause here and kind of tie up some loose ends. The first one is, is that this tells us something about God's will related to persecution. This tells us something about God's will 
related to persecution. If you ever hear someone suggest that persecution is the preferred condition for the growth of the church, you might turn to this passage and say, then why was Paul encouraging the Christians to pray that it stop? This is another one of these things that we say that sounds super holy, but again is more holy than the Bible. There is no evidence that God sees persecution as a preferred state in any way, in any general way, that we might be able to say as we see persecution gathering in a culture, it's better off this way. We're being foolish and we're not loving our neighbors. And we're certainly not loving our children. When I hear a Christian man talk about a laissez-faire attitude toward future persecution, I'm like, you are in danger of acting worse than an unbeliever because you have no regard for your grandchildren. It's like, it's like, why are you just letting persecution bubble up? Now, there's some holier-than-thou perspective that, no, persecution's good for the church. It, it eliminates cultural Christianity. It forces Christians to be real and so on and so forth. Now, just turn to this passage and say, Paul commands the Ephesians to pray that God changes the rulers' hearts so that they could live peaceful and quiet lives. So if you ever hear that, you might just turn to 1 Timothy 2 and say, why is Paul, Mr. Missions, Mr. Gospel Advance, Mr. Glory of Jesus, Mr. Church, why is he encouraging prayers for the quieting of persecution? If, he, if persecution is this magical thing that makes the church awesome suddenly, why is he praying that it stops? And secondly, we can see some application just for praying for politicians in general. If there's one thing I think we would all agree we do not pray for very often, it would be we very rarely pray for politicians. Now, one day I'll have to get into the imprecatory Psalms and explain how I pray for the politicians. But here we have a very obvious guide given by Paul for how we should pray. Simply this, we should pray that they do their God-appointed jobs. We should pray that they do their God-appointed jobs, nothing more and nothing less. And what is their job, as Romans 13 and many other passages tell us? Their job is to dispense justice without partiality. That's it, to dispense justice without partiality. And so what should we pray for when we pray for our politicians? Should we pray for their salvation? Well, that makes sense to me. Should we, should we pray for their health? Well, that makes sense to me too. But the thing that seems to be the most obvious and the thing that would benefit everyone is that they would just do their jobs. And this is a very important thing to understand the rest of the passage. This understanding that Paul is saying, let's pray for these politicians, that they execute justice impartially, really makes a lot more sense of the rest of the passage. So let's look back at it again. Beginning in verse 1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, I'm telling the truth I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth." 
As I already mentioned before, it's really easy to read this passage too quickly and get this sense that we're supposed to pray for politicians because God desires that all should be saved, even politicians. And I think I can understand why you would read it that way. But that is most assuredly not what Paul is saying. He's saying pray for them so that we might live in peace. So what is this then where, God, where Paul pivots to say that God desires that all men be saved? What's going on there? Well, first of all, let's just kind of get, let's just get our footing. Pray first and often is Paul's first charge. And pray for rulers that they would give us equal protection and show no partiality. This is the right thing to pray, Paul says, because this is how God acts. This is good and pleasing in God's eyes Because when it comes to offering salvation, he shows no partiality, but desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is not saying in verse 1, pray for everybody. He's saying pray for all kinds of people. When he says all people in verse 1, he's not saying pray for literally all people. He's saying pray for all kinds of people. Make all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Show no partiality in your prayers. And he says, in particular, speaking of partiality, pray for the rulers, that they show no partiality in the enforcement of justice, but they give equal protection under the law to all people, including us meager Christians. And he says, it's right to ask them to do this because that's how God is. That's what we see in this passage. It's right to ask them to show no impartiality because this is how God is. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires that all should come to the truth and be saved. He's saying it would be good to have peaceful lives. We need the judges. The most obvious way to do that is to pray for the rulers. And it's good to pray for the rulers that they are impartial because God is himself impartial. Just as Jesus says in Matthew that he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So I think a very important understanding of this passage is to say, okay, when Paul calls us to pray for all people, did he literally mean every single person who lives? No, he's he's saying pray for all kinds of people. And when Paul says in verse four that God desires that all should be saved, is he mean all people? Did he suddenly change his understanding of his use of all people from verse one to verse four? No. Paul is talking about, for him, the great theme, the great discovery of Christianity. What is the great theme? The great discovery of Christianity? That God was extending his saving purposes to people outside of one particular race. This is impartiality all the way through this passage. Paul is being cohesive. He's not jumping around. He's making one consistent argument. We can see that that, that there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, this is verse 5, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which, now this is the key, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This phrase, the testimony given at the proper time, is an allusion to something Paul talks about many places elsewhere, and that is that In Colossians, he calls it the mystery hidden for the ages. In Romans 16, he talks about this plan unfolding. And what is this idea of a testimony 
revealing itself, a testimony given at the proper time, that the Gentiles, that all of the nations had access to God's saving purposes, that all of the nations had access to God's saving purposes, that he wasn't playing favorites with the Jews. He was extending the gospel to all people. And that really makes a lot more sense out of this passage to understand that impartiality flows all the way through. And he even mentions the Gentiles specifically at the conclusion of this section. He says, for I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, this provides us the kind of final insight for how we should pray. We've seen we've got to prioritize prayer. There is a battle waging. And we are also welcome before the Father. We should pray because we have to, and we should pray because we get to. Years ago, I had an Amex Platinum card, which is a pretty high-ranking, you know, credit card. And I used it because I would travel so much when I was going overseas quite a bit. And you can walk into any airport, and you can show this Amex Platinum, and you can be ushered into a lounge where, you know, all the food and drinks are free, and the chairs are nicer, and it smells better, and so on and so forth. It's like uh, easily easy to get addicted to that kind of access, because I don't have that card anymore. And now when I go to the airport, I just feel like a plebe, you know? I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just a nobody now. If, if, you, if, you, uh, if you spend any time with people, of, you know, not, not just like upper middle class or lower upper class, but like excessive wealth, you find out like there are things you can do that I can't do, Right? And friends, I don't have prayer figured out entirely, but I'll tell you, I sure wouldn't want to lose the privilege of going throughout my day and appealing to the one not only who loves me, but has all the power and bringing this care and this concern and that issue and so on and so forth. I wouldn't want to lose the privilege of prayer. I don't make of it as much as I should, but I sure wouldn't want to lose what I have. Secondly, there are many times when life is really hard and you can tell that the winds have turned against you. You can tell that you're in a spiritual war. Well, what am I going to do about a spiritual war? I, I, my gun doesn't reach into that dimension, you know? What am I going to do about a spiritual war? You know, these biceps are only good for so much. You know, there, there are certain moments when, when, I'm, when I'm opposed by forces, I have no capacity to impact except by prayer. And so Paul says, first of all, pray. Why? Because pray because you get to. Pray because you have been afforded this amazing privilege. The God of the universe is your father. You did try something with me. Go outside at night when all the stars are up in the sky and talk to the one who put them there. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible privilege. And then do me another favor. Get really stuck in a situation that you have no idea what to do. Find all of the forces of hell turned against you. Find sin, the world, the devil, all of it firing all of it at you. What are you going to do? Man, I, I pray because I have to, and I pray because I get to. And when I pray, I pray liberally. I pray all kinds of prayers, and I pray for all kinds of people. 
I pray that God would meet all kinds of people's needs. I pray that God would show himself to all kinds of people. I make prayers and supplications and intercessions, even though I don't know what the differences are. I just do all the prayers. So that's a bit about prayer, and then we're given this final piece that I think can really serve you. Sometimes people know that they should pray the will of God, but they don't know what that means and they don't know what the will of God is in this situation or that situation. And I would say that probably the more helpful and, to be honest, more biblical way to talk about this is I'm not going to call you to pray the will of God. I'm going to call you, like Paul does here, to pray the personality of God. See, sometimes I don't know what God wants in a particular situation. And if I don't know that, that's because he has chosen for me not to know that. Sitting around and trying to figure out what God might want me to pray is dumb. He gave me some common sense. He gave me some basic like capacities to have preferences for less pain over more pain, for more food over less food, and so on and so forth. He's given me this instrument, these senses, this brain. And so I should pray essentially my will. I should pray essentially like this is what I think. But if you're ever worried about whether your prayers are legitimate, whether they're right, here's what I would tell you. I don't, I don't really know what someone means entirely when they say pray the will of God. I suppose I do in some respects. You know, I, suppose, I suppose if you prayed, like, God, would you please make that man who just pulled up in Quick Trip leave the keys in his Ferrari so that I can steal it? Like, I guess I could say, like, that's not the will of God. You, know? you would be praying against the will of God. But I think the better guide is what we see here. And that is, Paul says, you should ask God to change these leaders so that they give equal protection because that's how God is. Praying the personality of God makes a lot more sense out of situations when you don't know the specific will of God. So my advice to you in prayer is to just pray all the time, prioritize it, pray because you get to, pray because you have to, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, pray practical prayers, ask God to change things in your life. And if you're looking for a reason of like, well, well does God want this to change? Look at the personality of God. Who is God? Who has God shown himself to be? He's shown himself to be, as Paul says in this passage, a savior. Think about that. He's shown himself in this passage to be a savior. God, our savior. So I'm going to pray in accordance with God's personality. Who are you, God? You're a savior. You're a freer. You're a restorer. You're a redeemer. You're a fixer. You're a healer. You're a curer. You're a teacher. You're a corrector. I'm going to pray according to God's personality. And now I feel like I've got some clear footing that my prayers are at least reasonably legitimate. So that's what's going on in this passage. Paul is teaching these people, as we'll see next week, to pray. You know, a lot of the teachings about prayer in the Bible are really aimed toward corporate prayer. And that's something we just as a church need to get better at so that we're not only praying together on uh, Sunday morning and the few times that we pray during a worship service, but it's really been my heart for many years to have a group of people praying at least during the worship portion of the service, if not the entire service. Many, many years ago, a bunch of uh, Bible students came to visit Spurgeon's church, and Spurgeon was showing them around, and he says, I got to show you the boiler room. 
and they're like, uh, okay, you know, why? He's like, don't let me forget to show you the boiler room. And he's showing them all the other things. And like, don't let me forget to show you the boiler room. And like, why do I need to see? By the way, for the youngsters, boiler room is like where the HVAC, the HVAC stuff is, okay? It's like, why do I need to see the boiler room? And uh, finally, Spurgeon walks them into the space and he opens the door. He's like, here's the boiler room. And he opens the door and there's people praying. And he's like, this is the heat of my church. This is the warmth of my church. This is the spiritual vitality of my church that my people pray. And so I don't want to leave this message without also letting you know that, you know, coming in November, we actually are going to just start assigning teams of people to pray together, men to pray together and women to pray together uh, throughout uh, at the beginning of the service, through the worship portion of the service. And the truth is, is that we, we really hope that literally every member would be on that list and that you would take just one Sunday, maybe every six months to go, join with a few other folks and that you would spend some time in prayer for the service. Now, I do want to point you to what I think is, as I pivot to communion, what I think is essentially why we should practice communion every week. There are so many benefits. I talked last week about how communion helps us confess our sin. But one of the things communion does is it, it, it gives you a sensible taste and see material, tangible expression of what Paul says in Romans 8. And that is, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now see if this verse doesn't impact your prayers. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. So here's what I'd like to invite you to do. I want you to come and partake of the elements to grab a cup, to grab some bread, and to go sit down. And first things first, confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. And I want you to confess one sin in particular, prayerlessness. And I want you to say, you know, God, I got to pray because I got to. I got to pray because I have to. And I also need to pray because I get to. And if you can, I want you to remember this verse. Before, right before you partake, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God, help me to pray practical prayers. Help me to pray bold prayers. Help me to pray prayers in line with your personality. I have every evidence before me, the picture of Jesus offering himself for me. I have every evidence that you are a generous God, faithful, not only to save, but to provide. So how dare I not pray? How dare I not pray with faith? I'm holding in my hands very evidence that you will give everything to me that I need. So with that, would you come and partake at the table this morning?